Daniel, the hymns were just perfect this morning for so much of the scriptures. Uh, really, we could express with our whole hearts in some of those songs what Paul is writing about here in these scriptures. Let me read this again this morning. Thank you, Brother Payam, for your reading and prayer this morning. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers day, night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. When I write... I sit down in a comfortable chair at a desk with lights, Wi-Fi, a space heater at my feet, clean water, and plenty of food. I am in a peaceful, quiet neighborhood with relative confidence that these things will continue for the foreseeable future. Context makes a difference. 2,000 years ago, Another brother in Christ penned a unique letter from a context of obscurity, hardship, and finality. The setting for the letter we begin today, 2 Timothy, is radically different than in which we earlier heard from Paul when he wrote to 1 Timothy. Both letters were written by the same author, Paul the Apostle, both to his son in the faith. Timothy, who is now leading the church in Ephesus. Paul wrote both of these letters from prisons. But, in reality, that first prison and the danger he now faces are worlds apart. Life has dramatically changed in the few years between the writing of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Prison was not an odd place to find Paul. He was in prison in Jerusalem. Caesarea, Philippi, and even earlier in Rome. That first Roman confinement was under house arrest. At that time, he was allowed to have friends visit freely and could even preach and teach to some degree. In that setting, he wrote letters to churches in Ephesus, Philippi, and Colossae. And he even wrote a letter to a dear friend of his by the name of Philemon. After his eventual release... Paul traveled to Ephesus where he met up with Timothy. He then prepared Timothy to lead the difficult church in Ephesus. Leaving Timothy in charge of the church in Ephesus, Paul continued to preach and teach in a variety of cities. And we don't have it laid out in any kind of an itinerary, but if we piece together the scriptures, it looks like he was in Macedonia, Nicopolis, Crete, Miletus, and even went as far west as Spain. Paul's prison circumstances now at the writing of 2 Timothy appear to have taken place in what is called the Marmitine Prison back in the city of Rome. Constructed in 7 BC, Mamertine Prison is a stone-lined and stone-covered oblongish pit approximately 30 feet in diameter and only about six and a half feet from roof to floor. 
In the middle of the top of that pit is a manhole opening about three feet in diameter through which prisoners were thrown down into this dungeon. Its ruins are still available for viewing in the city of Rome today if you happen to be there. Please look it up. It's not flashy like many of the ruins that you'll find, but it is there, and it's an amazing place to visit. I was, had the privilege of being there 45 years ago, 40 years ago, and it's still there. <laughs> An ancient historian by the name Sallust wrote that it was located 12 feet underground. It was subterranean, it is, and he described its appearance as disgusting and vile by reason of the filth, the darkness, and the stench. There was no air circulation and very precious little light during the day. Nights would have been absolutely pitch black. 30 to 35 prisoners could occupy that pit at one time. The atmosphere surrounding Paul of starving, dying, bitterly hopeless men under such heinous physical conditions would have suffocated the soul and bred disease. AncientOrigins.net records, It was this, in this room that prisoners who had been condemned to die, either by strangulation or starvation, awaited their fate. An iron door at the end of the chamber opened to the Cloaca Maxima, the city's main sewer, where dead bodies are said to have been dumped into the Tiber River. One source claimed that when space for newly condemned prisoners was needed, the iron door along one side of the dungeon could be raised. The cell then flooded with city sewage. The prisoners drowned and washed back into the sewer and into the river. That is the office where Paul writes this letter to 2 Timothy. Paul's own description of his current condition appears in 2 Timothy 1.16 and 2.9. There he describes that he is in chains. And not only in chains, but he is imprisoned as a criminal. People didn't even know where he was. 2 Timothy 1, 16-17 reads, The Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. Evidently, even finding Paul was a very difficult task requiring tremendous effort. Most of Paul's ministry partners at this moment are long gone. 2 Timothy 1.15 He writes, You are aware of the fact that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 10. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. So one of his minister partners, Demas, had absolutely rejected the gospel and bailed out on him completely. Apparently three others, Crescens, Titus, and Tychicus, pursued ministry in separate cities outside of Rome, possibly even at the direction of Paul. Luke is the only partner still with him. 2 Timothy 4.16 indicates that Paul was having to stand alone before the magistrates in court. Perhaps because others were afraid of association by guilt with him. Yet Paul, Paul was not bitter. He writes, At my first defense, no one stood with me. 
but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. It is also thought, prior to Paul's imprisonment, Peter was jailed in this same Mamertine prison during the days leading up to his execution. His execution traditionally is stated to have been upside down in 64 AD. Because Paul was a Roman citizen, however, they would not allow him to be crucified. Instead, by the use of a sword, he was publicly beheaded in the mid to late 60s under the rule of the emperor Nero. But why is Paul there? Why Paul? Well, Nero, the emperor, was a master builder and architect. History records that in order to continue building in the city of Rome with new monuments to his skill, he had portions of the city secretly set on fire. This included the ramshackle huts of the poor, the fabulous homes of the wealthy, and large municipal structures. To escape the deserved wrath of his citizens, Nero used the growing religious movement who followed a man crucified by Rome a few decades earlier, a man by the name of Jesus Christ. Paul, being one of the prominent leaders of the Christian group, was eventually implicated, arrested, and sentenced to death. The impact of Paul's life of ministry is unrivaled. There has been no one like him. It was through him that Christ brought Gentiles like each of us to the saving gospel. He was used by the Creator God to bring you and me to faith in Christ and eternal life. He was used to write extensive portions of the Holy Scriptures. He came from being a hunter of Christians to one hunted for his zealous love for Christ. He has impacted either directly or indirectly millions upon millions of lives throughout history for eternity with God, including many, if not most of us in this room. How would such a man be honored? At the very beginning of the year, NPR and other new channels, news channels reported that on Saturday, December 30th, 2022, at 9.34, Joseph Ratzinger, known as Pope Benedict XVI, died at the major Ecclesia Monastery in Vatican City at the age of 95. On January 1st, Ratzinger's body was laid in the chapel at the major Ecclesia Monastery, where it was viewed by people closest to him. He was clothed in red vestments, the traditional liturgical color for papal funerals. In the morning of January 2nd, his body was moved to St. Peter's Basilica, where he lay in state for three days until his funeral. The reigning pope, the still living pope, stated that approximately 195,000 people passed by to pay their respects during the lying in state. On the evening of January 4th, Ratzinger's face was covered with a white veil. His pallium coins and medals minted during his reign and a rogito, which is Italian for a deed that summarized his life and his pontificate. All of these were placed in his coffin, coffin before it was closed. This funeral service was conducted primarily in Latin with prayers and readings in Italian, Spanish, English, French, Portuguese, and Arabic. The Sistine Chapel Choir sang at the service and Giovanni Battista Rey, the dean of the College of Cardinals, celebrated the Eucharist at the altar set up in the square. The funeral itself was attended by 50,000 people. 
Government authorities paid their respect from Austria, Belgium, Cyprus, Czech Republic, Hungary, Ireland, Kosovo, Liechtenstein, and on and on. Condolences poured in from heads of states from around the world like U.S. President Joe Biden, Russian President Vladimir Putin, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres, United Kingdom's King Charles III, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishid, to name some of the prominent figures. Social media and news outlets were crammed with photos of dozens and dozens of church officials. Men called cardinals in bright red robes, pointed white hats, strolling possession in procession to the Vatican City. Traditional Swiss soldiers were on guard in bright and orange and blue uniforms. Hundreds of nuns in mourning on the Vatican grounds. Hundreds of thousands of common people in prayer and mourning all around the world, perhaps millions. For a man who unless he had repented of his sin and entrusted upon Jesus Christ, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as the only and the complete means of salvation, never knew God and entered into eternal damnation. Paul, Paul's life, It ended not in a comfortable hospital setting, in the midst of palatial surroundings, adored by followers and supporters. The life of Paul, the man mightily used by God, ended in absolute obscurity. There is no record of a funeral, no record of a burial or even a grave. There is no indication that anyone was even present that mourned or grieved his loss. No dignitaries, religious leaders, or even common people sent in their condolences. So we have in our hands this morning laid out before us the final words ever written by a most amazing and influential man. A brother in Christ in his mid to late 60s who is facing imminent execution for his unbreakable faith in Jesus Christ. And he is writing to another Christian brother, probably about 35 years of age, who has been serving in the struggling Ephesian church for close to five years. What do you think this humble, amazing man, Paul, will say to Timothy, knowing this is his final testimony? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are but men, and you are God. You are creator, you are sustainer, you're merciful and gracious, and yet your wrath pours out on sin. Father, we owe you everything, and if it wasn't for your kindness, none of us would even have another breath or another beat of the heart. Lord, we thank you so much for the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for your use of the man by the name of Paul. Slight in stature, unimpressive, and yet having such impact that it has changed the world. Lord, help us to understand this morning, not to worship Paul, but to understand what you said through him, what you want us to know, how we can grow to know you better and to walk in holiness, in obedience, 
and honor you, Lord Jesus. For those this morning that are outside of your kingdom, that have not bowed the knee to Christ and surrendered their lives, we pray that they would, that this would be a turning point, Father. Please have mercy. For those who have trust in you and are your saints, your children, please feed us from your word. You know my weaknesses, Father, my inadequacies, but your word and your Holy Spirit has no inadequacy. Please teach us, Lord. In your name I pray, amen. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Relationships are vital in the kingdom of Christ. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. The ultimate indispensable relationship within the kingdom of Christ is with Christ himself. Paul affirms three things about his relationship with Christ. First of all, he is appointed by God. He is what is called an apostle of Jesus Christ. Secondly, he is empowered by the will of God. That is the means by which he ministers. And thirdly, his priority of all of life is the promise of life in Christ Jesus. In other words, his priority is the gospel. Life in Christ. I love how that's stated. Jesus told us. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. The gospel of life in Christ Jesus. One writer said an apostle was one that was immediately sent by Christ and had his authority and doctrine directly from him and had a power of working miracles from him in confirmation of the truth of his mission, authority, and doctrine. Another describes a New Testament apostle as one sent off on a commission to do something as one's personal representative with credentials furnished. That's who Paul is. Now the title apostle often stirs up trouble these days. There are actually many men who were called apostles in the New Testament. Barnabas in Acts 14, Epaphroditus in Philippians 2, James, the brother of Jesus in Galatians, Andronicus and Junius in Romans 16. But Paul calls these apostles or messengers of the churches. It's the same word, apostolos. But he calls these messengers or apostles of the churches. They are not in the same category of apostle as the twelve chosen by Jesus Christ. When Paul identifies himself as an apostle, he is talking about the twelve men appointed by Jesus Christ, minus Judas, added with Matthias, plus himself. These are the apostles of Jesus Christ. These thirteen were commissioned by Christ Jesus. They learned the gospel from him. They witnessed Jesus' words, deeds, and especially his resurrection. Paul was included with them as one untimely born because Christ Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus road and on three other occasions recorded in Acts. But someone may have thought of some of those credentials and thought, well, but poor Paul was handicapped because he had missed the opportunity to be taught by Christ well, with the other apostles during Jesus' lifetime on earth. But Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 1 that he was personally and directly trained in the gospel 
by Jesus himself. He declares in verse 11, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus had taught him directly the gospel. Apostles of Christ also received and taught divine truth by the Holy Spirit. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Paul writes that the signs of a true apostle included signs and wonders and miracles. Now, the question could come up, why would Paul bother to give such extensive detail of his credentials in a letter to a close friend like Timothy? He's known him for years. They've ministered together thoroughly. And I'll offer three reasons. First of all, to remind himself of who he was. Under the gut-wrenching circumstances of the Marmotine prison, this was crucial. It is sometimes necessary to consciously remember and declare who God is and who we are through His gospel. You must know His word to do those things. There are some mornings, personally, when I wake up in the early hours, heavy-hearted for a variety of reasons. They are real concerns I'm facing. But they are not the truth of God, and they are not the truth of who He has made me. In the last week, I've heard several brothers and sisters share the same thing with me. In those moments, the truth of the Word of God brings me back to reality. Not back to the focus of circumstance, not back to my emotion, but back to truth. Paul, as well as you and I, stand on the truth of God's Word, and we live by faith. We do not profess to make it true. We profess the word of God to be true. Even under the most oppressive situation imaginable. Where we find Paul. Secondly, to remind Timothy. To remind Timothy that this letter with its encouragements and commands. Is not simply from a good friend and father figure. It is directly from God. It consequently is inspired instruction through the Apostle Paul, which Timothy must now obey. And thirdly, he wrote this detail to remind the church, to remind the church in Ephesus that the authority Paul had given to Timothy was not of the good old boy variety. This letter was from God through Paul to Timothy with the accompanying authority of God. And it was written to, verse 2, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy, it says, is a dearly loved spiritual son of Paul. The word technon means offspring or child. And it can mean son, but what Paul wants to communicate here has nothing to do with gender. Timothy is one who has been born again by the Spirit of God through the ministry and testimony of Paul. God brought Timothy into Paul's path in the city of Lystra during Paul's second missionary journey. Timothy had a good reputation among the believers there. So what Paul saw and heard from the brethren convinced him enough that he was going to bring Timothy along for the ministry journey. They traveled together through Thessalonica, Corinth, and Jerusalem. In Rome, Paul records that Timothy faithfully stood at his side in prison. Regarding Timothy's character, Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. 
who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everyone in every church. Timothy was the extension of Paul's ministry. And Paul desired a threefold spiritual blessing for this beloved son. First of all, grace. It is the unmerited favor of God. It is what we do not deserve, but God gives to us. Receiving blessings of eternal life, sonship with God, union with Christ, the Holy Spirit that will dwell inside of you. The promise that God will never leave or forsake. These and many, many, many more are some of the undeserved blessing that God showers on us, which we by no means deserve. For by grace, for by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. Grace, Timothy, grace. Mercy. Wednesday evening in our study from Habakkuk, Mark defined it this way. Mercy is not receiving the wrath due our sins. And that is right on. God has not given us the eternal punishment that our sin has earned us. Romans 3 gives us that account. It says, For by the wages of sin, excuse me, that the wages of sin are death. That is what it earns us. Isaiah 59, the prophet said, That our iniquities have separated us from God, and our sins have hidden his face from us, so that he will not hear. But Titus 3.5 replies that according to his mercy, he has saved us. He has saved us and released us from the guilt of our sin by placing it upon his son Jesus Christ on that cross. And when Christ died on that cross, it was not simply a, a beautiful thing or a courageous thing. It was those things. It was a painful, excruciatingly painful thing. It was a humiliating thing beyond degree. But what Christ wept about and what held him in such suspense, pleading for God the Father, was that at that moment on that cross, the sins of everyone who would trust in him would be poured out on him and Christ would be held accountable for that sin. And God would pour then his wrath, just wrath, for that sin upon his dear faithful son. What a picture of mercy. That God would not give us what we deserve. And he would give what you and I deserve to his son. Then the third item is peace. I ask you, can you even vaguely imagine the agony and horror surrounding Paul day and night in the Marmotine dungeon of death? Yet, we, we begin, yet when we begin to read this letter from that hell hole, we see a man possessed not by survival instincts, but by the peace of God. Paul wrote from an earlier prison to a small church in Philippi saying, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And that peace of God, The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God displayed in Paul as he thrived for Jesus Christ in that horrible prison must have been surreal. 
It must have seemed completely out of place. The grace, mercy, and peace Paul knew and desired for Timothy moved him to action. And that is to pray. We pray for each other in Christ's kingdom. Verse 3. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day. We need a heart for praying for each other. Paul anchors his prayer in thanksgiving. As mentioned a moment earlier in Philippians 4, verse 6, it reads, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Here's Paul. He is in a cesspool of filth, stench and death. And what does he do? I thank God. And he does it from a pure conscience. There's no hypocrisy as he cries out with thanksgiving for Timothy. He is right before God. He is not perfect, but right because of Christ and right by intention and conscience. He is right before God because of the gospel that he has proclaimed. In humility, he makes no claim to a new and more robust religion or faith. I like what he says here, and it, it almost is, is un, obscure that you don't notice it, but he says, he is doing just what his forefathers before him had done in worshiping and serving God without compromise, as his forefathers had done. Paul is a fanatic about praying. This definition of fanatic fits him well. Quote, a person filled with excessive and single-minded zeal, especially for an extreme religious or political cause. That was how Paul prayed. There was no ending. He didn't stop praying. In several of his letters, he has the same take on prayer. And look how he says it here. As without ceasing, I remember in you my prayers... Day and night. Now without ceasing would have gotten the point across, would it not? And so would have saying I'm praying day and night. But Paul doubles up and says that I do not stop praying for you and I pray for you all hours of the day. Now he functioned in other ways. He taught, you know, it wasn't like he was on his knees in a, in a corner somewhere constantly. But he had this continuous relationship with God where he was speaking with God constantly. And, and that is something that I hope you and I can master, that we can grow in this, that our consciousness is in the presence of God. That I'll be honest, many times I float on uh, cruise control instead of remembering that I need to be under the control and direction of God the Father at all times. And that requires an ongoing conversation. And I believe that's what Paul is saying. I never stop praying. And I remember you constantly. You're always on my heart. Then Paul gives Timothy three reasons why he is praying so zealously for him. Verse 4 says, Greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also, Timothy. Paul strongly desires to see Timothy. As Doriani points out in his commentary, it says, Paul lists Timothy as a co-author 
of five epistles, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, and 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Paul and Timothy had collaborated and written these inspired letters together under the leading of the Holy Spirit. Timothy ministered as well as Paul representative in at least four different cities, Macedonia, Corinth, Philippi, and Ephesus. Paul's unwavering confidence in Timothy is clear in his letter to the Philippians. He says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know Timothy, his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Secondly, when he thinks back on him, Paul remembers Timothy's tears as they parted. In Acts 20, verse 36, we read of a similar experience of deep love and emotion, not with Timothy, but with the elders from Ephesus several years before this time. We read there, and when he had said these things, Paul, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. I don't know whether Timothy may have had that same thought or premonition about never seeing Paul again when they had departed the last time. But there was a bond there. There was a closeness. At some point, Paul's departure from Timothy had evoked tears. Tears that even now Paul cherishes in his dark, dank jail cell. And they move Paul to prayer. And ultimately, he prays for Timothy, knowing that joy will come. Joy will come. I, it's, it's hard to put those together. Having read and studied and seen pictures and, and about this prison setting and this situation, that this man can be so full of thanksgiving and joy. It testifies to the life of Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that is who Paul is in this deepest, darkest pit of a jail. But he knows that he would be filled with joy. As Paul looks back on the authentic faith displayed in three generations of Timothy's family, his heart is filled. It must have brought great joy to Paul in the darkness of his dungeon to look back on what God had done first in Timothy's grandmother Lois, then in Eunice, his mother, and then clearly in Timothy himself. Many scholars believe that Paul was instrumental in Lois and Eunice coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul may have been an early preacher of the gospel whom they heard directly, or perhaps indirectly, from others who had learned from Paul. But without doubt, we know that Lois and Eunice had loved Jesus Christ. And they consequently raised young Timothy surrounded by the Word of God. We will read in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy later on as we study this, where Paul says to Timothy, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood, some translations from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise to salvation. Through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Hendrickson states, It would seem, therefore, that a date not later than Paul's first missionary journey, grandmother Lois, living perhaps with her daughter, 
and Mother Eunice had been converted to Christ so that they saw in Christ the fulfillment of the promises and placed their trust in Him and that these two women in turn had cooperated with Paul in that glorious work of grace which resulted in Timothy's conversion. In the dungeon of death, Paul prayed with thanksgiving because of the relationship he had with God his Savior, with Timothy his beloved spiritual son, and with sisters in the body of Christ like Eunice and Lois. Cherish and cultivate, brothers and sisters, cherish and cultivate these three important relationships. Do you see what they can do? They can bring thanksgiving and joy even if you find yourself sitting in chains awaiting execution. Relationships with Christ. 2 Peter 3.18 says, But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. First and foremost, be committed to growing in your relationship with Christ. Secondly, grow in your relationship with close partners in ministry. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 Paul wrote, so we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Share your life, life upon life. Encourage, be with each other. Show hospitality. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. And thirdly, cherish and cultivate relationships throughout the entire body of Christ. John 13, 34 says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you that your Holy Spirit will work in us through the word of God. Lord, I pray for our our body, our, our assembly. Lord, that you would unite us together in Christ. That we would be a people that pray fervently for each other, even day and night. May we, may we grow in the habit of, if awakened in the night, that we would turn to prayer and pray for each other. Lord, may we be a people that is committed to growing in our relationship with you. Lord, feed us, fill us, lead us. Grant us humble hearts. Lord, Grant us the fear of God and the trust in you. For you are worthy forever. Thank you, Father. In your name I pray. Amen.